I like to say that I'm a child of the 60s, but that would be a mischaracterization. A child of the 60s, that phrase is usually used to describe somebody who was at Woodstock or somebody who was old enough to actually have lived through that tumultuous period in our nation's history. On, in my case, all I can say is I was born in 1965, so when the Vietnam War protests were taking place, I was you know, playing baseball in my backyard. I really was not aware of the global events, and, or nor was I even capable of comprehending what was going on and why there was such turmoil in our country. All I know was I wanted to wear a POW bracelet. Now, for those of you who don't know what a POW bracelet is, um, it, it was a little metal one that had the name of a prisoner of war on it, and you wore it until they came home. But my parents wouldn't let me wear one. They wouldn't, I mean, kind of, you're five. What do you really know? And, and, I, and I don't know if they were worried that I was going to, like, suffer some kind of persecution, or I don't have any earthly idea, but all I remember was longing to have one of these POW bracelets and not getting to have one. This was my, my remembrance, if you will, of the Vietnam War. But I, I can tell you that the Vietnam conflict, the political turmoil around it, shaped my generation in such a way that most of my friends and I had a negative view of the military. It's not necessarily good. I'm just saying that, unfortunately, when you're raised in an era where people think, you know, fighting and war is bad, and you get into the whole ethical discussion about whether or not there should be war. When that happens, you can't help but be shaped by the culture around you. And unfortunately for me, I missed out on some really great opportunities to learn uh, some amazing skills by working in the military. I would have actually would have been a fantastic way for me to pay for my college, but because my father was a flaming liberal, and because I was raised as this child of the '60s. You know, my perception of that was that I didn't want to participate in that. And you can see as a byproduct of that for lots in my generation, people, they, they fled the country during the 1960s when they were going to be drafted into the war. There's a whole mentality of, uh, of people who said, I'm going to avoid serving my country in this way. I was watching Band of Brothers, and I don't know if you've uh, watched this video series produced by Tom Hanks and Steven Spielberg. It's an eight-part series from HBO, and uh, buy it for your father here on Father's Day because I guarantee he will like it. Uh, And may I pause briefly to recognize, as far as I can tell, uh, the three dads that are in the room uh, uh, (laughs) in a small church. It's not hard to find the people who are dads. They've got hairlines that go all the way back here. You know, they've got something that communicates, I have aged in this process. Uh, no, but it's Father's Day, and I'm saying this would be a wonderful Father's Day gift uh, for your dad would be to buy him this Band of Brothers uh, DVD pack. One of the things that was really, really startling to me was the testimony of one of these veterans of World War II when he described that there were several men in his hometown who committed suicide just after the draft. And the reason they took their lives was because they were declared 4F, which, if my designation is correct, meant they couldn't go to war. They were told they weren't allowed to fight for their country and go to war, and because of that, they took their lives. They were so despondent that they didn't get to defend freedom that instead of, like, rejoicing, I didn't have to go to war, they were so despondent that they said, my life 
isn't worthy enough to fight for my country. And I just thought, what a, what a contrast to my generation. You know, that our, our notion was, unfortunately, you know, ooh, what a ooh, breath of fresh air. I didn't get drafted. And that generation felt a responsibility that was so heavy to defend the freedoms that are ours as a nation that they would be sad that they didn't go to war. I, I thought about this in relationship to our passage today in, in the first part of the book of Second Thessalonians. And this month we will conclude our study in the book of Thessalonians, uh, both of them, one and two. And as we start this second one, Paul repeats a number of the themes from the first one, but n- not the least of which is his, his directive, his encouragement to those of us twice in the passage to live lives that are worthy of this calling that we've received. And when you think about that, if depending on the church you were raised in, you might actually think that he's saying, you, in order to eternally end up with the Father, have to live a life that is worthy. So there's this mentality, especially if, you, like, I was raised Roman Catholic. Some of you were raised Pentecostal or fundamentalist Baptists. And so there's this sense, even if that's not what's being taught, that, if you don't get your stuff together, if you don't work really hard, if you don't collect, you know, your, you know, get it all together and live a life that's worthy, that somehow your eternal destiny is in the balance. That is not what the apostle is saying. He is saying something akin to, do you realize how free you are? Do you realize the freedoms that you have? Do you realize how liberated you've been? Do you realize how rescued you are? Now go fight for the Lord. He's saying equivalent to, you, do you recognize the freedoms that you have as an American citizen? And if you do recognize the privileges, the joys, the, the opportunities that you have that so many around the world don't, if you recognize that, then, then you should, with great zeal, come to the defense of a country that's provided so much for you. See, this is what Paul's saying. You are free. Now go fight. He's not saying fight so that you might, or else you're not going to get to be counted as one of these citizens. He's saying you've been declared free and you are a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. Now live a life that is worthy of such a call. Two themes that he, he weaves throughout this first section of Second Thessalonians 1 and their themes that again were present in his first letter. And I, and I have to say that any time a preacher or a pastor goes back to the well and begins to talk about something they've talked about several times, it, it's not a time for you to go, I wish they'd move on from the subject. It's a time for you to say, maybe we didn't get it the first time around. We hit the gospel all the time, every day, all week, all month, all year around here because, man, our hard heads just don't get the gospel. We, we won't ever stop banging that drum because I and you naturally cannot comprehend unconditional love and grace. And so we have to hear it over and over again because every fiber of our being rings true with the cultural mandate that you get what you deserve. Instant karma is going to get you is what John Lennon sang, that there's something in this world that says if, if you do, you will get and in the gospel of grace we're saying this is so good God loves you so much he's going to give you what you do not deserve 
And this gospel is at the root of the things that Paul's talking about, two different themes. One would be judgment and the other would be prayer. Now, this first theme of judgment that streams through everything he's talking about is once again something he addressed in the first letter, but there is a reason, as we talked about weeks ago, any time that the subject of the end times comes up, it's not to give televangelists more material to predict the end of the world. It's that you and I would find, a dis- we discover in that something that was valuable for our current situation, for our present day experience. And Paul says as much in this passage that he did this to quote unquote, give them relief. And that relief was because of the intense persecution that was taking place in their lives. The church in Thessalonica was born in persecution. It grew in spite of continual persecution, but in the middle of all that, and perhaps you can understand this, I certainly can, some of the believers were wondering if God was fair if God was just. I mean, we're doing this Christian thing and they're beating the snot out of us and it just doesn't seem like they're suffering at all. We're suffering continuously. And they began to wonder whether or not God was just. And the apostle comes along and says, all right, I understand you're suffering. I'm with you. I've experienced it. I I can sympathize at every level with you. But let's make something very clear. Justice is not a short-term thing. This is gonna happen one day. And Paul is very clear. He says that these people who persecute you are going to suffer an everlasting judgment. The text is frightening for those who would be persecutors of those who are Christians. But Paul assures them that in the long run there will be justice and he says God's vengeance. In the midst of explaining this, Uh, Paul gives real clarity on who gets judged and why. And so we look to the text where it says, those who do not obey the gospel, that is that they are not going to respond by repenting and believing the good news. And the evidence that they, the Thessalonian believers, are real believers is the fact that they are being persecuted themselves. And Paul knows what he's talking about when he says, that one day the people who persecute you will be judged if they don't repent. He knows because he was a persecutor, a violent persecutor of the church. So Paul's talking in territory and in in places where he's he's not just thinking intellectually. He knows that he is recorded in the book of Acts, participated in the stoning of the deacon Stephen. He also knows that he was on the road to Damascus and he was getting ready to persecute the church there when God knocked him off his horse and said, you're going to follow me. Paul knows that if it weren't for that miracle of God rescuing him, he would be in the same condition, a person suffering a judgment that is eternal, that is everlasting. And this clarifies uh, something really important, and that is the need for people to recognize that there is going to be a judgment day. I say briefly, but importantly, that there is no way apart from discounting this passage as actually coming from the Apostle Paul, it is virtually impossible with any degree of integrity in in interpreting this passage of Scripture. It is virtually impossible to not come to the conclusion that subsequent to our death, subsequent to the return of Christ, there is going to be a judgment 
and that they are going to be people who eternally, in an everlasting way, are going to be separated from the presence of God and the glory of God. Now, there's some popular, quote-unquote, pseudo-evangelical theology and books out there that would suggest to you that hell isn't a real place, that ultimately everybody will be saved. And while I appreciate, at one level, the motives, my mentor, Steve Brown, says, if you don't long for it to be true that everybody will ultimately be saved, you don't have a heart. At the same time, if you don't believe and recognize in passages like this that everybody isn't going to be saved, Dr. Brown would say you don't have a head. Because you can't, unless you're just going to discount it as coming from the Apostle Paul, or you're going to find some way to redefine it that is just not with any confidence accurate to the, to the descriptions being given here, we, we have to come to the conclusion that some will spend eternity in judgment. How many? I don't have any idea. And, and I don't think any of us can know the hearts of people to know whether or not they've genuinely trusted in Christ. In this passage, beginning with verse... Forgive me, I've lost my place. Uh, uh, verse 7 says to grant you relief who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire. Now, again, this is Jesus in fire, not people. Inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. People have said, you know, do you believe that hell is going to be hot? Do you think the scriptures describe it as this eternal place of, of fire? Is that a metaphor? Is that real? And, and, you know, we could debate about whether or not the place of everlasting judgment is literal fire and coals and hot. But what we can't debate is that this passage says it won't be comfortable and that being apart from the glory of God will be nothing less than torturous eternity if of nothing else regret it won't be florida as opposed to the bahamas it's not going to be a substandard heaven it's not going to be a second place where people go if things didn't go so well the eternal judgment of being shut out of the glory of god will be painful and awful and paul brings this up to say to people you know, we want, to be, we want you to be comforted that there will come a day of justice, but it's important for us to recognize as well. He doesn't tell the Thessalonian believers, so, you know what, flaunt this in front of the face of your persecutors. When they're persecuting them, when they're persecuting you, tell them, you're going to hell and I can't wait. You're going to be judged one day, so there. The, the text is really wonderful. And then it says they will suffer, in verse 9, the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of God when he comes on that day to be glorified and to be marveled at among those who believed. You and I on the day of judgment will not be going, ha ha, told you. We will not be standing over them like a really cocky NFL cornerback who just knocked out a wide receiver. We're not going to be standing over them and taunting them like somebody who just beat somebody down in the octagon. We're going to be marveling at the grace and love of God and, and marveling at 
how we didn't get included in the people who were judged. We're just going to be like, oh my, I'm so fortunate to be in the presence of the glory of God. You and I are never in a position that we are to be anything but loving towards those who persecute us. Jesus made that very clear. Pray for those who persecute you. Love those who don't love you. Leave it to God to be harsh if he's going to be harsh. Our responsibility is to reflect the grace and love of Jesus towards people who are not loving and maybe even cruel to us. The second theme he has in this passage is prayer for the Thessalonians. And there's an abundance of enthusiasm he has in the first passages of this verse about how God is working them. Paul's pride for how they developed as a church entails him bragging to other churches about them. And he gives prayers as thanks for them all. Now, that said, he's got these two themes. The fo- Today, I want to focus ever so briefly on the second type of prayer that Paul offers for the believers in Thessalonians. The first type of prayer is this prayer of thanks. Grateful for all you're doing. I'm so jazzed for what God's doing in your life. I'm telling all the other churches about it. You're enduring in persecution. You're growing in your faith. This is really exciting stuff. The second prayer he offers is to remind, he leads the Thessalonians and us in a reminder that prayer only brings about our spiritual hopes and expectations. That God has given you and I and the apostle himself the responsibility to pray that a couple of things would be brought about in our lives. That we can't do these things on our own. One is our conduct and the other thing is our caring. One is our conduct in this world. The other thing is how we care for this world. And And Paul, again, frames this in terms of living a life, now that we know we're going to be rescued, that we know we're going to be marveling in the presence of God if we're genuinely a believer, if we've trusted the gospel and believed it and turned and followed Jesus, we know that one day we will be in the presence of God. Now that we know that we are free, now we're we're called to live a life that is worthy of the gospel worthy of this gift that has been given to us. And the first thing he would say would be that a worthy calling presumes a walk that is Christ-like. A worthy calling presumes a walk that is Christ-like. Verses 11 and 12 are the two verses I want to focus on for the balance of our time today. To this end, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power, so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. This, the goal of all this is that Jesus would be seen in us. And the prayer that Paul offers for us is that our character, that our walk, that our behavior would reflect Jesus. It would be Christ-like that the things we would do in this world would cause others to look at us and say, that reminds me of that Jesus guy. That the behavior we have would cause others to reflect and look almost through us to see the eternal glory of Jesus Christ. He's praying, and it quotes, and I quote, for that our resolve for good would flourish into a life-filled 
with conduct that honors and pleases God, that our resolve for good. Now, I know that there are some of you who might say just what I say regularly, which is my resolve seems to be running a little low. Now, you know, I, 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 I want to imagine that I'm not alone and having been a pastor for coming up on 20 years, I know I'm not. All right, I know I'm not alone. That most of us on a daily basis, if we're real, will say, we wonder where that storehouse of resolve is going to come from. Part one of our mission as a church is to revive the believer. And the way we believe that happens is as a person comes into contact with and into the enjoyment of the presence of the Lord. And is in the Lord's presence where we find the resolve to live for him. And people will say, well, I don't feel worthy to to enjoy the Lord's presence or to come into the Lord's presence. And I say, you're not. You never will be. Only Jesus has made us acceptable to enter into the presence of the Father, to receive grace, to receive mercy and, our, and help in our time of need. We are so locked into our performance that we start thinking that we're, you know, I can't come into God's presence and in, and listen to him and ask him for what I need. I can't even come in and pray, oh God, help me to have more resolve because I'm stuck in this lifestyle pattern that's keeping me from being able to even be close to God, to offer my prayer, help me, God. And I'm here to encourage you, my friend, that if you genuinely are a believer in Christ, you've trusted him, you've said, Jesus, I, I respond to your grace and faith. I'm trusting in what you've done for me to make me acceptable, forgiving my sins. I'm here to encourage you today that he has paid for you to be able to access the Father even at your worst. And that you and I will never develop a greater resolve to follow him external to enjoying him and external to his presence. You and I are never going to find the desire to follow him, a desire to want him, if we aren't around other believers. This is a means of his grace. We are never going to desire, all of a sudden wake up one day and think, oh, I really want to follow him today. There's Where that happens is in prayer with him. And that prayer is accessible because he's made you holy. He's made you worthy by Jesus. In Christ, you now access him. Not because you did really well this week, today. He wants you to come into his presence regularly. He wants you to be aware that it is possible to access him through faith in Christ's holiness in you alone. You have been already made acceptable to the Father. I, I liken it to this, my son graduated from high school Friday and we had this l- lovely buffet at the Santa Anita racetrack immediately afterwards. And when you walk in, they kind of, you know, people just wander in and, and they know in advance you make the reservation and, and you watched all these young people, these graduates just tearing into this food. It was an all-you-can-eat buffet. And boy, did they miscalculate how many football players were coming to that event because they ran out of beef. <laughs> they really did. And, and that's because, you know, you got all these big, huge young men going, all you can eat, huh? All right, I'll take a side of beef. Thank you very much. I mean, they just, you know, they're getting ready to have this all-night celebration, and they're eating like crazy. Well, not a single one of them thought for a moment, I'm not going to be able to go to the buffet 
because they knew that mom and or dad paid for it already. They boldly went to the buffet. They didn't say, there's something that makes me a little reluctant to go to the buffet to get what I need. They knew mom and dad foot the graduation bill and it was time for them to make good on it. As a matter of fact, I wish my son had stayed for another hour to really get our money's worth out of the thing. That was what I was hoping for. No, 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 we'll stay till they bring out another side of beef. Thank you. But this is what Jesus has done for you. Do you feel like your resolve to, to be obedient to the Lord is low? So, well, join the club. Do you feel like your heart sometimes is waning? Well, you come to the buffet that is Jesus, and he's already paid for you to get in there. You don't have to do anything else. Come to him. Feed on his presence. Feed on his word freely. And it's in that experience that you are going to develop a resolve. And Paul is praying. You see, at our rebirth, when we became Christians, we were given a new constitution. You say, I don't feel like I have a resolve. You do. A base resolve. A dispositional change that took place at the moment the Holy Spirit came to live in you. It's incomplete and it's perfect, but it exists in you. Someone who has received Jesus as Savior has received this Jesus who also is Lord, and he is calling you and I to reflect him to the world around us in our conduct, to live lives that are worthy of his work in our lives. Mark Driscoll says this, Christians aren't perfect, but they make progress. This whole idea, though, of a worthy calling It's imperative that you understand what the word and the terminology around calling is about. I read from Romans 8, 29 through 30. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become, to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. Theologians refer to this passage as the ordo salutis, or the order of salvation, what takes place in the eternal decrees of God. And what begins with God saying, I'm going to enable these people to understand the gospel. My children, I'm going to give them the grace. I'm going to renew them so that they can hear my voice and respond. So when he calls to us, we respond. We are brought to life as Jesus brought his friend Lazarus to life. And we're told to come forth. And that call is irresistible. It's one that says, you are now alive. You are now awake. I am calling you to myself. The call of God is not an invitation to salvation that comes at the end of an evangelistic crusade. The call of God is the effective call, the call that awakens you and I. And we respond in faith. And we are being challenged commanded by Paul to live a life worthy of the calling we received very similar to Peter's declaration in 2nd Peter verse 1 verses 5 through chapter 1 verses 5 through 11 for this very reason Peter says make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge we need to roll on there there Alberto thank you very much we, for this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue 
and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness and steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love for if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he's blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election, for if you practice these qualities, you will never fail. Do you hear this? You have been cleansed from your sins. If, if you're not living this way, you've forgotten. If, if, you, if you say, I don't want to fight, it's because you don't realize the freedoms you've been given. One of my favorite World War II movies is Saving Private Ryan. And if you've not watched Saving Private Ryan, you need to. And you need to get over the fact that you're afraid that your kids are going to be frightened by the violence. I mean, I think, that's a, I think it's a part of, if you're a parent, it's a part of training your children to recognize just how, just how amazing uh, a generation of people were in defending our freedoms. That said, there's a scene at the very end of the movie where uh, Captain John Miller, played by Tom Hanks, has finally rescued and they are going to send home Sean Patrick Ryan, the Private Ryan of the title. They are saving him. And yet Tom Hanks' character, Captain Miller, gets shot, and he is dying. And these friends, these comrades, have all gone to great lengths to, to rescue this, this man whose brothers had all died so that he could be restored to his family and be the only living offspring of his parents and the last words he offers to, to Private Ryan are, earn this, earn it. Now, you, you might read that and go, so he's, how, how is he supposed to earn this? How is this a gospel symmetry? Aren't, we're not supposed to earn uh, our salvation. This is the point. His salvation, his rescue, his life was given to him as a gift. If you recognize the value of the sacrifice that has taken place for you, you're going to say, I'm going to live a life that is worthy of such a great sacrifice. I'm going to live a life. And and if I don't have that within me, I'm going to keep coming to the Lord's table. I'm going to keep coming to the Lord's people. I'm going to keep coming to the Lord's word. I'm going to keep praying to the Lord that he would create and renew within me that resolve for good. A worthy calling presumes a walk that is Christ-like, and secondly, a worthy calling produces a work for Christ's kingdom. One of the things that Paul prays for as well in verse 11 is that every work of faith by his power will be made to happen, that he prays that he would fulfill every work of faith by his power. Paul is praying that every work of faith would be fruitful in leading others to worship and glorify the Lord Jesus. And this is where it is especially significant that Paul has one of his themes, the day of judgment. Our work for Christ's kingdom is a now event. Our work to rescue people from the judgment, the death that is coming for them is something that takes place now. We are, we are saving, hoping to save them from a day of judgment. If there is ultimately no hell for those who reject the gospel, then I don't know that there is a purpose 
for what the church calls evangelism, reaching the lost. The, the, if they're ultimately going to be saved post-death or post the return of Christ, then there's no urgency that this should take place now. And Paul would say, I, I'm urging you to, to go at the reaching of people and the serving of culture and the, and the renewing of culture with great vigor. Part two of Prism's vision is reaching friends. We, we say we want to renew or revive believers. And we also, our third part is to renew culture. So many churches skip over the second part of our vision, which is to reach friends with the gospel, that they would enter into relationship with Jesus and be rescued from the eternal judgment that Paul talks about here in 2 Thessalonians 1. So many churches, and, and, and two in particular, two types of churches tend to do this. Churches that don't believe in an eternal judgment would probably be short on evangelistic programs. I mean, that makes sense to me. If I didn't believe in eternal judgment, I wouldn't be awkward and walking up to people and telling them about Jesus. I wouldn't find ways to wedge it into the conversation or pray with all of my heart that God would give me an opportunity to share the gospel with somebody who might actually be angry with me. And this is what's important to recognize. Once again, a confirmation that the gospel at times is going to irritate people such. Paul said that if, if, you're, if you are suffering, you're being declared worthy of the gospel. As Jesus said, if they persecuted me, they're going to persecute you. Paul is saying that some people are not going to like the message of the cross because it's going to irritate them to death. The other component, the other type of church is the kind of church we kind of fall inside of, which is this Reformed Orthodox Church. This church that believes in God's sovereignty over all things and uses words like election and all these things, these churches tend to be very indifferent to evangelism too. It's almost as if to say, God's sovereign, so he'll take care of it. We don't need to. So there's like zero motivation for people to actually, if God's going to rescue them, he doesn't need me. Well, the question of need, want, the relevance is, is that he's commanded us to do this and that he is going to work through people. And this is how it happens. And so you and I are being encouraged by the Apostle Paul to have a work for Christ's kingdom, a work of faith that comes by his power and through prayer alone. Once again, it becomes clear in Paul's thinking that prayer and dependence on God's power is the only way we see works of faith come to fruition. It's the only way that you and I see our own hearts come to life is we say, God, my resolve is low. Would you create within me a greater resolve to love you? My resolve to serve you and serve people and care for people and reach out to people is low. Would you, cre would you create that within me? And this is consistent with what the scriptures tell us about the need for the power of God in evangelism. One of the verses that I first memorized as a Christian was Romans 1.16 I am not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. This power is, is present in the gospel, but Acts 1, 7 through 9, Jesus says to the first disciples, it is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father's fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all of Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And when he said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. So Jesus is saying, we have got something we've 
got to do, but it's going to happen by the power of God's Spirit living in us. It's something that happens by virtue of our praying for it to happen. Something that happens by our desire, this something within us, this resolve within us, this something inside that says, I want to be used by God to impact this world for Christ. He's praying that it would flourish. When I was at West Virginia University, I was involved with Campus Crusade for Christ. And, you know, I love to talk to people about the gospel. I would share Jesus as, as, as I had opportunity to. But I was visiting with this leader who'd come through campus once, and he'd asked me, have you ever prayed, Chuck, with somebody to become a Christian? And I went, no, I've never done that at all. And he said to me, well, let's pray that God would give you an opportunity to do that. And I thought, what a strange request. At the time, I thought, that's something I've never prayed for because I just didn't think it was appropriate to pray for that. I mean, there was just something about it that seemed awkward. God, I'd like to be somebody who got to play this particular role in somebody coming to know you. It just seemed kind of out of place. But it was, in fact, something I really wanted to be a part of. I, I wanted to experience the joy of helping somebody become a Christian. I, I'd never experienced that, and I thought that, that would be kind of a trip. And I thought it was something within me that was saying, this should be or could be a part of my experience as a Christian. So I started to pray to that end. And not very long after that, young woman who was living in our dorm over dinner, she and I at the cafeteria started talking, and the conversation got deep about the Lord and about faith, and we continued the conversation over days, and, and then one day we were visiting, and, and she said, come back to my room, we'll talk some more, so we sat in our dorm room, which is down the hall from mine, and we talked, and I said, do you want to become a Christian? And she said, yeah, I really do, and I thought, is this the time when I'm supposed to ask her if she wants to pray like right here in her dorm room? I was like, ugh. So I said, would you like to pray right now? And she said, sure. And I thought, I can't believe God answers these kind of prayers. But he does, friend. To that end, I want to give you a bit, a bit of a preview coming up very soon uh, in uh, March of 2014. So soon is a relative term, like the soon return of Christ. And uh, sometime before Jesus comes back, we're going to do this, which biblically would be soon. But at the same time, in March of 2014, we're going to do here at PRISM what I am terming the 30-day PRISM Outreach Experience. This is going to be a comprehensive church-wide, and it's not going to be what you think. We're not going door-to-door, you know, so you're not going to, don't relax. I can, I can hear some of you going, oh, Lord, are we going to walk around the neighborhood and, like Jehovah's Witnesses and banging on doors? No, you're not going to do that. This is going to be a, a, a full-orbed experience. We're going to pray together. We're going to have four, five messages on the subject of outgrowing the ingrown church. We're going to have four uh, different lessons that we're going to do that are sermon-based responses for our home groups. Uh, we're, going to, we're going to spend the month praying that God would give us individual opportunities to talk to people about Jesus. Ones where we don't have to awkwardly introduce the conversation and make somebody feel silly. We're going to pray for God to move so that we can participate in his program. And I believe we're going to experience something really marvelous. And it's largely because we're going to pray. We're going to kick off the month of March with fasting and praying that God would open doors that we can't believe he's going to open for our church. Because there's something in all of us that is saying, if I've been rescued 
there's a spark of it. There's, there's something in you, a little resolve that says, I want to participate in helping others. And you don't have to wait till next March to get started. All you have to do today is pray that the power of the Holy Spirit that lives in you will begin to guide and direct your steps. Direct your steps to live a, a, a life, a, 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 an experience with Jesus that's worthy of his kingdom that it would produce a work that would honor him and a walk that would be Christ-like. Let us pray. Father, to the end that it would glorify our Savior Jesus, I pray that uh, you would work in our church. We want to be used of you, Um, not because naturally speaking we are just such great people that we want to be used by you, but you've created that within us when we came to know you, and I pray that you'd take take that, that bit of resolve that we have and make it flourish. As Paul prayed for the Thessalonians, I pray for us that the desire we have to to love you and to glorify you in the way we live, um, that people would see you in us, that 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 would flourish in response to the freedom that we've experienced. Lord, I pray for a church that would be very naturally and comfortably about reaching others, that it would flow from hearts that are revived in the grace of God. I pray in Jesus' name.